Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 329. Thanks to the Respect Sextet, they recorded the theme music for this show, and they have recorded a ton of great music in the years since they did that. And in fact, when they recorded what I use as the theme music for this show, it, of course, that was not their intention. It's on one of their records. So go buy all their records, and the easiest way to do that is to go to respectsextet.com and just give them money. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo, and he was, in fact, explicitly doing that when he did it. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L, and he's very funny, so follow him. If you're listening to this in real time, then this week at jazzdiy.com, there's been a series of video interviews with Adam Schatz, who founded Search and Restore. And Adam and I have also been trying to get together for him to do a jazz session episode for a while. And so it seemed like maybe it made sense to do both of those things in the same week and just to ask different questions. So I urge you to go to jazzdiy.com and watch the videos with Adam, which are really talk about Search and Restore at length, uh, the business of it, and kind of the creation of the festivals and all that stuff. And then this interview focuses more on the music and also on Adam as a musician. So I think they're nice companion pieces. So go to jazzdiy.com. In fact, I might even do that first if I were you and go watch those videos and then uh, come back here and listen to this interview with Adam Schatz. Or you can do it in the other order. I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, because you know, I'm interviewing Adam not so much about uh, – about some new album that's out, although there is some of that also. Um, this interview will probably have a little less music than you're used to, uh, but I think it's there's a lot of really great content in here, and we'll just get a little tiny snippet of one of the bands that Adam is involved with, uh, but you'll hear more later, and he'll talk about some of the tracks from the records that he's uh, recently on. So here we go, a little bit of music, and then Adam Schatz from Search and Restore. is Adam Schatz, who's both a musician and also the head of Search and Restore. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Jason. I want to mention right off the top that this is kind of a, a companion piece to uh, a set of video interviews that you and I did very recently for Jazz DIY. So if folks go to jazzdiy.com, uh, you can watch Adam talk a lot about the business of Search and Restore. And so we'll focus a little more on the artistic side today. But uh, can we start kind of in the same place we did for those videos and just tell folks what Search and Restore is and maybe also mention your current fundraising efforts? Absolutely. Uh, Search and Restore is a nonprofit organization dedicated to bringing together the artists and audiences of the new jazz and improvised music community. 
and I started it in 2007, late 2007, when I was a sophomore at NYU. I was studying saxophone and had been organizing rock shows for my own bands and other friends' bands and was recommended that I start doing the same thing within the jazz community, and it just kind of took off pretty quickly. I was working with a lot of people who I idolized and loved, and it just grew and grew and grew and grew, and we started helping out with the Winter Jazz Fest, which we're a co-producer of this year, and we founded the Undead Jazz Fest with Bryce Rosenblum from Winter Jazz, and then kept, you know, building and growing, and it's just kind of been going steady since. We got nonprofit status in 2009, which meant that I had to take it more seriously, and then I graduated college in 2010, which meant I really had to take it more seriously, because otherwise I'd have to get a real job. And so that kind of prompted our first major fundraiser, which was a $75,000 Kickstarter campaign last year, which led to us spending all of 2011 building and developing our new website, the searchandrestore.com, which is, I think, the absolute best and only real dynamic point of discovery for this community. It's definitely the first time a music discovery website has been made specifically for a musical community like the like the jazz scene and so it it it's been really awesome and we've got tons and tons of videos up there artist pages everything connected and we're just trying to grow it from there and in that vein now we've we have to fundraise again because that's what being a nonprofit is all about and that's what I'm starting to learn and so we've got a ton of huge plans for next year to continue the website to do a year-long residency project featuring a bunch of different artists to do a house concert series that will become an internet TV show based around improvisation, a podcast involving live performance, and a bunch of other things. And that all lives at jazz2012.com, where we're trying to raise $200,000 and doing everything we can to make that happen by December 19th. Which is which is coming right up so really you... <laughs> soon, really soon. <laughs> and uh, if uh, if you're listening to this while you're mobile and you didn't get a chance to write that down, if you go to the jazzsession.com website, that link will be in the show notes for this show. Uh, will you just kind of help us define some terms and and talk about how you set the parameters for the musical community that you're working within? Sure, it's a hard thing to do because the word jazz can mean so many different things to so many different people. The way I see it is. Every artist I work with and love can take their own personality and put it into the music they're doing. So whether it's swings or whether it's slams or, you know, whether it's completely spacious, it almost doesn't matter as long as they're putting themselves forward. And that sort of personal connection is really important and really present, I think, now more than ever when it's not as much about the formal requirements of the music as it used to be within the jazz chronology, but now because there's so much more music available because of just the ability to have 15,000 songs in your pocket, you can have access to the punk that you love as much as the folk that you love and have that influence the improvisations you create and the music you compose. And same thing goes for pop songwriting within this music. It can just go so many different places. And I love within a festival to have someone you know, someone whose group is totally pop and song based next to someone whose music can completely freak out at any given moment. And it, that sort of juxtaposition is really important to me. So it's hard. It's hard for me to define sometimes. It's more about an energy. It's more about where people are coming from when they make this music. And as long as it feels 
as long as it feels personal and as long as it feels of the now of today, just, you know, relating to their own experiences, relating to their own current sound, then, then I love it and I want to work with it. I thought, uh, at Undead, just to give people maybe a, a specific kind of concrete flavor. I mean, this was my first time uh, going to Undead, and it it contained within a couple nights uh, John Hollenbeck's uh, quintet, Claudia Quintet, also uh, the totally free set of roundtable duo improvisations, and also Jamie Saf's uh, kind of dub and reggae influenced New Zion trio, all under this one umbrella, which seems to kind of speak to what you're what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I like contextualizing improvisation in a way that is easier for people to swallow, but doesn't take away from the music at all. It doesn't remove any of the integrity from it. It's not dumbing it down, but just by how you pace a night of music, how you present things, it can change how a newer listener will digest it. And it'll for longtime fans of the music, it just sort of increases your stamina. So over the course of a festival, you can really take in a lot of music. The Round Robin Duets is a perfect example of that and really speaks for what I love about my position in this stuff is when I can get slightly involved in kind of ar- arranging things and setting the parameters for how music will go down from time to time. So the night of Round Robin Improvised Duets, which we've done twice so far, is I'll get together a group of artists, you know, 16 to 20 musicians from all across the board. We've had so many great guys do it. We've had Christian McBride do it, Don Byron, uh, this past year at the festival. We had Charlie Burnham do it, Eric Friedlander, all, all these amazing folks and from all across the map musically. And we put them in a random order. I had my guys on either side of the stage with a stopwatch timer and the first artist would go on stage and improvise for five minutes solo. And then the second one would go up and join him for five minutes. And then at that five minute mark, my guy would send up the third guy and upon seeing the third guy come on stage, the first guy would leave. And so it would become this continuous improvisation that would be almost two hours long, but completely fresh the entire time. And something about the structure of that night allows artists to forget about any sort of ego or pretense and, just commit to the idea of creating a bigger hole. And it's, I think I could do it a hundred times and it, it wouldn't get boring or tiresome. It was just such a special thing. And there must certainly have been cases, probably many throughout the night where two people were on stage who had never played together before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just combinations that you never thought could happen. Dave King from the bad plus and Jim Black played <laughs> duo sharing the same drum set and kind of wrapping their arms around each other. Which and that was, was phenomenal. Yeah. It was phenomenal. <laughs> it was it was so funny. In the the first night we did for our fundraiser last year, Hal Wilner and Matt Wilson played duo where Hal played a soul record and Matt pretended to play the drums, which was then following, following Matt playing with Christian McBride where he it was like the hardest swing I've ever heard and it, it felt amazing. And like that alone – that representation of the humor and the passion, like that was Matt in a nutshell. And that was all, all those guys together. It just like, it speaks to what I love about the music and what's possible and how you can bring that out within the presentation of the music. Can you talk about the place of humor in what you do? Cause it does seem to have a very prominent place that kind of takes the edge off maybe the seriousness of this music as, as art without diluting that, that seriousness. I think historically, at least in the past, 20 years 
when I've been alive and conscious, jazz is often presented more so with an intellectual edge or a historical edge. And no matter what, that's going to come off as being a little serious. And for me, my experience with the music on a personal level has always been so fun that I want that to be what comes out through my presentations and everything I put together. And I think humor is an important element of music regardless, especially because if these guys are putting themselves into the music, putting their personalities into it, I hang out with most of them and they're all, you know, they have tremendous senses of humor on a personal level. And so when it comes through in the music, it's not a, oh, that's funny sort of thing, but it just adds a light spirit to what's going on. And then it makes the the dark and heavy stuff hit even harder, I think. Again, the idea of, of juxtaposing things rather than just slamming with one one idea or one feel consistently, which then can also be effective within the greater context of those juxtapositions. So I don't know. It, it's I, I'm just kind of a funny person in general in that I like to make people laugh. And so that bleeds into everything I do, be it when I'm playing or talking or introducing or organizing. But again, I, I never wanted to take away from the music. I just wanted to, if anything, make it a more welcoming environment. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I was going to ask you whether, and maybe I still will, but I was going to ask you whether you see uh, Search and Restore and the music it presents as uh, like another facet of the jewel kind of compared to like jazz at Lincoln center and the music it presents. But then you mentioned when talking about last year's fundraiser, having Christian McBride and Matt Wilson, just doing, you know, kind of killer swing, what we would kind of consider the like the classic traditional jazz mold. So it seems like the through line I was creating in my head for what unites your artists maybe is even more expansive than I thought and, and bleeds over into those other areas. Yeah. We're, it's not an exclusive club at all. And again, it's about, you know, I I have no problem and rather I think it's so important to identify with the history of this music and how how much of that is in the music you make today is up to you. That personal choice is, again, part of the bigger idea about what draws me to this music. And as you know, when those two guys were going at it, it felt so present and so of the moment. And it just had this like spontaneous spirit where you you know you didn't even have a chance to think like oh that sounds old it was just like oh my god this is completely blowing me away and i'm being steamrolled by this energy and that's like that's what's important to me like that's that's at the core of everything we're i'm I'm never gonna say no i don't want to work with that music because it sounds too much like that you know if anything i would just say oh it doesn't make me feel you know it doesn't make me feel good it doesn't i'm I'm not feeling that magic and that's going to be with Again, that could be the most modern contemporary sounding thing could make me not feel the magic. Sure. Did, was there a moment in your own life where the idea of music with more freedom became kind of more present for you? I mean, I know growing up, you know, I listened to what was on the radio. I listened to a lot of prog rock also. I listened to a lot of kind of 80s pop because that was when I grew up. But, but then I also started to realize at one point, like, oh, Music can also go in this direction. There's also a way to do it without some of these rules. Was there a moment like that for you? I, you know, I started playing piano when I was in second grade and saxophone when I was in fourth grade and sort of grow, growing up and playing music and listening to music. I was never listening to anything that was that weirder or out there or free per se within that 
the realm of those instruments. I was a really big Beastie Boys fan, that was, which like secretly probably helped with a lot of this stuff because again they just they just didn't care and they were just blazing a trail and that like that energy did a lot of things for me. Um, so I I feel like freedom in music actually came from hip hop for me when like in eighth grade I was listening to a lot of hip hop and was really into the raucous records and New York scene that was happening then. And the lyricist lounge stuff. I mean, and it was just like there was a you know brief moment. I it, I think it was two thousand two, maybe it was two thousand one when lyricist lounge had a TV show on MTV. They had like a weird freestyle rap sketch comedy show on on and it, I I mean I think it was actually bad, but I saw it and like that was like mainstream enough just to even let me know that like that approach. To, to freestyling was possible. And I, you know, I just began like downloading as much as I could of guys doing that sort of thing. And I thought that was really great. But, you know, in, in high school, I was just listening to Wilco and, and doing other things and writing pop music. And then when I got to New York, I studied saxophone at NYU. And from the first show I went to, I saw Dave Binning's Welcome to Life Band play at the 55 bar. And I knew there was something much more flexible about what they were doing and i really identified with that as an audience member as much as a musician because i didn't know what they were doing musically it was just like wow this sound is really going places and i would go the next night and still hear that and then i i studied with ralph alessi and wayne krantz and dave pietro at nyu and those three guys really helped present improvisation to me in human terms and it's just like taking me every other place I can I can imagine it's really changed my life in an amazing way. But then thinking back to like what this music activates in people, I mean still now I have a piano in my house and I get all my writing done when I'm like walking by the piano. It's never like <laughs> let's it's never like let's sit down and write. It's right. just it's just oh there's the piano. I'm going to make myself late for whatever I have to do and just mess around and and see what comes out. And something usually comes out and that's been going on since I was four. And that's, I think that sort of freedom to create and freedom to identify with an instrument kind of on your own terms without rules and any, any form of musical education I think is going to benefit you because you'll just have more things to work with and more things to draw from. But the core of that has to be that spirit of, Oh, I'm just going to like walk up to that piano and see what we can make together. And that, that to me is like my first experience with freedom and music. But like most things, when you're younger, you don't realize how important or special they are at the time. You'd rather just be watching The Simpsons or whatever. Right. Whatever is happening. Yeah. I have, I have said on this show many, many times that I think kids start out with, you know, improvising as a core part of who they are because they have no choice but to improvise. And then I have, I tend to think it gets educated out of them and the lucky kids find it again. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And I that you know, I don't have any immediate plans to get into the education side of things with search and restore, but when we do, that's going to be one of the first places we go is bringing improvisation into people's lives at a much earlier age at, you know, at the elementary school level, at the middle school level. Cuz I've done clinics with my with my own bands where we would go and have a you know, middle school concert band at our disposal or a high school concert band and 
could, you know, write out a little melodic figure and have them improvise with it and do conducted improvisations with them. And whether or not it sounds good doesn't really matter because you're giving them a taste of that feeling. And it it's amazing to see who identifies with it. You know, are 50 out of 50 kids going to think that's really cool? No, but if two out of 50 kids realize that it does something special for them musically and on a human level, I, I think that's awesome. Yeah, and if they don't get any exposure like that, then zero out of 50 kids will think it's cool. Yeah, that's that's what's happening currently. <laughs> when you accidentally go to jazz school, then it, <laughs> yeah. it can just happen. Uh, can you, uh, you've mentioned uh, your own bands. Can you talk about the projects that you're involved in? Sure. I'm involved in a lot of projects because <laughs> I... You know, I like making music as much as I present it. And I, I try not to repeat myself. So each, each band I'm involved in is kind of, of a, you know, a different part of my musical brain and just my relationship with the guys around me who I love to play with. Uh, probably the oldest, the longest running band going right now that I'm in is Father Figures, which is guys who I met at NYU and we kind of met along the terms of just being friends and then decided to make music and it, it grew from there and we actually we had all studied with Wayne Krantz at one point and he sort of helped shape a lot of where our Im improvisation minds went so it it's definitely energized kind of rock and hard driven music with two tenor saxophones upright bass keys and drums I play tenor and do a lot of Casio and effects loops and stuff too and music's probably 75% improvised but we really practice on improvising in a way that can sound composed. So you don't really know when something is, or rather it can all just sound spontaneous and all have that energy to it. And it works just as well in a rock club as it does in a, a jazz club or a, a gallery space. So that, that's been a really fun band to work with. So we're going to hear uh, a track from Father Figures. Can you tell us what we're going to hear? Yes, this is uh, this is called the Steamship Authority. It's off our new album that is looking for a home right now, but it's been recorded. Uh, we did most of it live to two-inch tape, and then overdubbed some things, and it's we're really psyched about it. So that was music from Father Figures. Uh, tell us about another band. Sure. 
Uh, Landlady is my current sort of songwriting project and just another degree of my personality where I, I, I spent a year or so writing these songs and I play Farfisa and I sing. There's two drummers um, and just some other really talented people. Indigo Street plays guitar and sings. Renata Zeiger plays Casios and violin and Ian Davis plays bass and it's just a really huge sound and kind of orchestrating a rock ensemble without having too many actual orchestrals orchestral elements in it but keeping it really dynamic and most of all just really fun it was also an excuse for me to write some minute long songs which <laughs> i never done before yeah this is a song off that record one of the minute long ones called birds of prey part two from Landlady. It seems really interesting to me as someone with, uh, speaking about you, I mean, as someone with a, an improvising background, uh, that it must be kind of a cool challenge to try then to condense what you have to say down into 60 seconds. Yeah, it's I think it's necessary. I think limitations are really exciting and I really do everything I do for an audience. There's not too much of it that's personally you know, self-serving and about my inner artist. It's just, I love affecting people and sometimes you got to package things in new ways. And I, I think it's a good challenge for everyone around me. I mean, every, everyone in all of my bands are some of the most talented guys I've ever, and girls that I've ever met and played with. And it's just cool to shape and reorganize those things. And then, you know, you bring music to them and it, it completely, it just completely changes the way, the way people affect it. For this band, uh, and maybe for the other projects too, I didn't ask, but I know that you're releasing this record on both vinyl as an actual record and a digital download. And you said that that's your favorite way to do it. Why is that the digital way to do it? Well, I mean, records are, records are awesome. And I feel kind of cheated that I haven't been alive for more of the time when you got to just buy records of all your bands that you loved. But now it's kind of coming back, which is exciting. Um, I don't know. This CD has just, it's being phased out. It was never that cool to begin with. And you just need to be progressive about finding new ways to release music. So I, I, I'm not doing anything too crazy. Lots of people put out, <laughs> sure. put out vinyl albums, but I love doing it. And just the art is so big and I get to hold my own music on a, on a wax disc. And I think that's wild. 
Uh, is there another band you want to tell us about? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll drop one more. This is a this is a band that I'm actually wasn't one of the co-founders of, like landlady or father figures, but. This is an Afrobeat band called Zongo Junction, which I've been playing in a lot. It's a 12-piece Afrobeat ensemble. Kind of started off doing a lot of Fela Kuti music, and then we've evolved into writing a lot of original music that is inspired by that stuff. And that's been a really cool thing and a, a big challenge for me. I I just co-wrote one of the songs for the band, and that was a really exciting thing to get really get involved with what makes this music unique what makes this music afrobeat how can you make it your own again personal creation but still have it be in in the same vein in the same line of what's what's come before it and that's you know i i don't get to be part of a five piece horn section that often so it it's really really fun can we hear a track from that band? sure this is a song off our first record called elephant and mosquito Mosquito, big nations versus small nations. Le peuple contre le gouvernement. Thanks for all that music. Yeah, thank you. Is there still uh, both in? It sounds like it's definitely true as a performer, but in Search and Restore, also, is there still an element of discovery for you? Do you still have time to, to kind of find new stuff and and be wowed, even though you're spending all this time actually bringing it to other people? Yeah, there has to be because otherwise, I can't do it anymore. I can't allow myself to be in the position to make decisions if I'm not open to discovery. I'm not able to go out and seek it out as much as I was when I was still in school and wasn't running the organization as much. I mean, it's kind of that catch-22 where now it's it's really going and I should be discovering more, but I'm stuck just trying to keep it afloat. So I don't know. It It's nice because a lot of people email me about their own music and I, I listen to absolutely everything and I'm lucky to be blown away by some of that stuff, which is a, a really fun thing. And I don't know, it, it, I do need to build things up in a way where I can get out more. One of the big elements of this current fundraiser is I, you know, we need to get an office space. We need to hire a few more full-time employees so that I can distribute the power a little bit more and then just not feel like it's all on me so I can 
go out a couple nights a week and really see what else is going on. The nice thing about the video project we've been doing for the last year is I haven't been filming most of the shows, but I've got my guys out there shooting a couple shows every week and that comes in and that goes on the website. And then I get to see a lot of things that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. And we try to take as many risks with that as possible. There's a lot of artists and a lot of great things going on in the city. So we're, it's still sort of a slow build. We're starting with what we know, but it's a real open platform for music discovery on our end and on the end of the users. We did talk about this on the, the interview at, at jazzdiy.com, but will you tell people more about the video component of the Search and Restore website? Sure. Well, I was, it kind of came out of a, a desire to bring that live energy from the music to more people just a, as a way to connect and discover and, and really get to know an artist better beyond their studio recordings because just the, the current climate for recording in general is rough and you usually don't have enough time and it, for whatever reason, it, the albums I hear rarely seem as representative of an artist's personality and spirit as does any video of them. And while the sound quality is not quite as good as a studio recording, that, that energy really comes across. And so we've been filming hundreds of performances throughout the year. And upon artist approval, we put them on the website and we build an artist page for every musician in every video. So you can connect the dots to the videos by all the artists who play with each other. And as we film more and more, you can see more and more of these people in different settings. So you can see Mary Halverson play completely free, or you can see her lead her own band. You can see Ivan Opsvik lead his group or you can see him play solo bass, or you can see him as a part of Schoolies Ferrison's almost entirely through composed Syria group. And it's just, you know, those are all sides of those artists who you wouldn't, which you wouldn't be exposed to unless you really dug in and found out where they were playing all the time and wanted to see them a bunch. And I think the common current fan or the potential fan definitely doesn't have time or a desire to do that because they don't know it's going to be great until they go. So this is a way to try to get the that experience out to as many people as possible. And the hope is that it will really drive more people to the music, get more people to the shows, get more people to buy the albums, which we're linking to on the page. And if we can get a big enough audience to the website, we can experiment with more direct forms of monetizing all this stuff and just try to get more money back to the artists for what they're doing. And one thing uh, I remember you saying on the the video interview, which I thought was cool too, was that not only is this a way for people who actually live here or can come here to figure out who they want to go see or learn more about who they might go see, but there are well, billions of potential jazz fans who cannot get to see these artists because of where they happen to live. Yeah. And this is a way for them to have access to this, the current scene as well. Absolutely. I mean, what lies ahead for me is a crazy marketing task where I need to try and get this website out to as many people as possible. So for the next year, we need to figure out what jazz festivals are happening around the world and get volunteers to pass out little flyers with searchandrestore.com on them. We need to buy some ad space on these sites. We need to really get active about it and shove it in people's faces and I think when people get there, they're gonna, they're gonna grab onto it and they're gonna really want to keep coming back because we're gonna keep new content coming in. Those, you know, that's only billions of, of potential jazz fans on this earth, but they just, they just found that second earth. <laughs> that's right. And I bet there's a bunch of people on there 
who have no idea what we're doing here. And I, I want to go there and film what they're up to also. I think it would be really exciting. Cool. Next year's fundraiser will be several billion dollars to build a spaceship. Listen, like yeah, it. the spaceship won't build itself. <laughs> we need your help. Jazz2012.com, folks. Yes. Um, I, I want to uh, dig back into the music and talk about the the Blue Note series and and the idea – and this is not dissimilar from the, the Round Robin idea, but the idea of putting together people who have not shared the stage before – to see what happens. Can you talk a little bit more about that, Siri? Yeah, again, it's me being slightly more involved than your average presenter or organizer. And I take, you know, I definitely take cues from that from Hal Wilner and from Bill Graham and guys who could really facilitate things out of the ordinary rather than just giving a band their time slot and saying, you go, then the next band's going to go. There's ways to coax out as, you know, as much magic as possible in a way that doesn't feel phony. Just briefly, will you tell people who Hal Wilner and Bill Graham uh, uh, Bill, are? Yeah, Bill Graham is a concert promoter. He was a concert promoter and organizer who came up in the San Francisco scene. He really ran the whole Fillmore West and Fillmore East thing in New York, and he created the club Winterland. So he was always working with the Grateful Dead and the band and the Allman Brothers, and he would do wild team-ups like The Who and Miles Davis, and he, he paired up Rashawn Roland Kirk with someone crazy. I don't remember. But he was – and he was kind of a legendary asshole on the business side of things too. So I don't identify with all of him, but the one Bill Graham story I do identify with is before his show started, he would always like be in the venue blowing up balloons himself. And that's something – you know, I never want to be not helping blow up the balloons. He was really yeah. – he was really involved in that way, and he cared. He cared even when he didn't. He cared. And then Hal Wilner is a producer, event organizer. He's made some really amazing compilation records and is sort of known for his, his tribute event. So he did um, – oh, what's the – what are some of the recent ones he did? He did – Yeah, I can't remember it. I know. They're, they're all, they're right all escaping me. Well, <laughs> yes. he, he, or, he organized a really cool Neil Young tribute around right. the time of the – Olympics, he organized a really cool Bill Withers tribute. Um, he just did uh, the Freedom Ride tribute that happened at Prospect Park and just getting together a crazy assortment of artists who you never think would play together and they perform all this music and he helps arrange it and collaborate with guys and it's just a really special thing and he kind of attracts this community to what's going on with the music. So I, I really identify with what both those guys are doing and if I can come even close to accomplishing what they can accomplish, I'll be happy. And so now tie that into the, the Blue Note series for us. So the Blue Note series was is a series that's ran this whole year at the Blue Note. They were crazy enough to give me a Friday night slot. So every Friday at midnight, we would put together spontaneous construction, which I I each week I would assemble a different group of artists who have never performed together before. Sometimes they'd never met before, and they would improvise and it was a whole range of guys. I mean, really early on, we had Stephen Bernstein and Colin Stetson play together with Vicente Archer and Dan Weiss. We had Theo Blackman and Jenny Scheinman, Todd Sikavus, and Ori Kane do one together. We had Joe McPhee and Marika Hughes, Johnny Bear, Nasheed Waits do a really great one. I mean, so many incredible, incredible combinations. And it was great every single week. There wasn't a single one I saw that didn't feel special. It was an incredible study on improvisation because it took all the pretense away from it. It was already absurd that this music was happening at the Blue Note. So 
that was out of the way and then there was no band leader and there was no sideman, you know, no one called the gig. I organized it. So everyone was just able to show up and play with each other. And it was just music as music exists. And it was always thoughtful and it was always exciting and it never sounded the same. And it was, it was just an incredible experience. So I, I want to keep doing more, more and more things like that. We filmed almost all of them and they're all going to be up at searchandrestore.com. A bunch of them are up there now. We had Andrew D'Angelo playing with Greg Sonier, the drummer from Deerhoof, which was a real, if I can be proud of one thing I did this year was I got Deerhoof into the blue note. And that kind of, <laughs> I think that, I think that represents everything I, I stand for. So there's, there's new, the series isn't going to go on after this year, but I have a bunch of new new ways to keep sort of being involved in in the just complete imp- improvised side of things. I want to do a house concert series, and depending on how many dollars we raise kind of depends on how frequently we'll do it. But every time we'll have three artists who are perhaps associated musically but definitely aren't in a group together, and each one will perform – a short solo set, either, you know, 10 to 15 minutes solo and then perform a collective set as a trio. Mm-hmm. And it'll be a really easy, honest way for you to get to know each performer individually and then hear how they interact with each other. And I want to film those with two cameras and multi-track audio and kind of make it the first improvisation-based television show and maybe in- incorporate that with some interviews as well and and just really have it be a easy easy access guide to what what these artists are creating and what they're capable of doing and just saying this is the improvisation there's no album cover there was no songs being written there's no band leader this is just what people are capable of doing and to do that in a different person's home or a different loft space some unique setting each time we do it is it ever challenging for you to go to musicians and say, particularly like in the case of this Blue Note series or in the Round Robin series, to say, what I want you to do is to get on stage with people you've never shared the stage with before, with no pre-conversation, no rehearsal, no lead sheets, and just go? Does anyone ever say, oh, that sounds like something I'm not really interested in? <laughs> it's amazing how rare that was. I think... Everyone I asked to do it was interested in doing it, and almost everyone did do it at one point in time. And I was always always amazed by the people who said they would do it. Nels Klein did it. Billy Martin did it. I mean, they did it together. Actually, you know, when <laughs> did when would you think you would hear those two together with Jacob with <clears throat> sorry with uh with Jacob Sachs and Oren Blodow playing the bass, which he only does in Elysian Fields. It was just a, I don't know. It, I think. Everyone was really excited to be able to do that. And they all do it behind the scenes anyways. And a lot of guys perform in those contexts, but there's still usually a band leader, someone who called the free session together. But, you know, definitely, again, as a musician, I know it happens all the time. People get together and they play for fun. So why not involve an audience with that? Because these guys are sure as hell good enough where it's going to, be special and an audience really feels welcomed into that situation. They, by telling them what's going on, by even just explicitly saying, this is the first time this has happened. Again, it just makes improvisation kind of really easy to swallow in a way where the music isn't being changed at all, but you're just telling people this is all happening right now. And the subtext is, and you know, 
because you're here, you get to experience it the only time it happens in that way. And, you know, yeah, we are filming it and distributing it. And I think that's cool too, to give people more than one chance to experience it. But you know, it's, it's never going to be the same as being in the room. Yeah. And that's, that's the hope is that people will see this stuff and say, Oh, I got to go. I got to go see this. I got to feel this happen to me. Finally, let me ask you this. And this is something that's been coming up on the show again and again, often because I bring it up, uh, <laughs> which is kind of where, where you see the, the role of the audience and your relationship, both as a performer and as a presenter to them, what you owe to them, what they owe to you, right? kind of how you see the, the modern audience. I'm trying to think of a smarter word to use, but I can't. It's not it's not coming to me. So I'll use more words to say what I want to say. <laughs> oh boy. The it's where it's completely codependent. You know, the audience needs the artist and the artist needs the audience, and I think both have the potential to make the other feel something. And that's a really powerful position to be in. And because of that mutual environment you need to respect the other side. And that's about as broad as you can put it, but pretty much everything's under that umbrella. You know, you got to really experience the music, the artist it, that the artist is presenting in the way they want you to experience it. And the artist needs to serve the audience in the way that the current situation asks for it, the way the current situation requests it. It needs and and so it, but it, it's such a dynamic relationship which is what i like to explore i like to put this music in a skate park i like to put it in an amphitheater i want to put it in a treehouse and just see how the relationship between the artist and the audience can change i think breaking down the barriers a little bit is important just even telling people hey this is improvised it's something that an artist might even not feel good about just saying for whatever reason i mean or maybe just some artists just actually don't like talking to the audience at all. But I, I think any – if it doesn't compromise the art, being explicit about what's going on on stage is a really great thing. And it can invite more audience members in to experience it and to love it. Yeah, it's uh, – just last night I was talking with a friend and I was joking that I'm – you know, my most of what I do in my life is either in the world of jazz or poetry, which are kind of the two two places where people feel like they are not invited without some sort of special knowledge, and that everything I'm trying to do with my life, with this show, and with what I do in the poetry world, is about proving that idea wrong. And it sounds like certainly in the jazz world, that's also something you're really striving to prove wrong. Yeah, absolutely. It's tricky. I mean, there's the most common thing is someone who's never seen the music before could go to a jazz club and see everyone else nodding their heads. And rather than just try to let the music hit them, they'll begin to have a self-conscious train of thought and say, well, what am, what am I, what are they getting that I'm not getting? And part of that has to do with the historical weight of the music. And I don't know, I, I've always felt that while knowing the history and even knowing the theory, knowing all this stuff can absolutely enhance the listening experience. It's not required. And you can have, you know, just come out of a 400-year coma and hear this music for the first time and feel something that's really special, really unique, and really significant. And no one can take that away from you. That's real. It's a personal experience. And I, I just want to present jazz as being the most human music out there because it has that direct personal relationship between the artists and the audience because it's can be 
something completely new created every night, which you're not going to get with the Rolling Stones, which you're not going to get with a most current rock music. I mean, and then there's guys like Deerhoof who are phenomenal and embody that spirit and can, even though they aren't, you know, jazz per se, they, to me, they completely line up with what we're doing as well. And I know half these artists love their music anyway. So it's, you know, why not smash it all together and just make it a little easier to swallow without taking away from the music at all. My guest is Adam Schatz. He's the founder and head of Search and Restore, and they are currently uh, doing an enormous fundraiser at jazz2012.com. He's also uh, involved in a number of bands that you heard about here, and we'll have links uh, to all that stuff in the show notes of thejazzsession.com. It's been a pleasure to talk to you again, man, and uh, thank you for everything you're doing for the music. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. This was awesome. This will go right. I will give you fever. I will give you fever. I will give you malaria. I will give you malaria. And if I look down, I know he can't fly. He know he get no power. People get the power. He know he cannot fly. People get the power. The power to the people. Adam Schatz, the founder of Search and Restore, and uh, links to both the Search and Restore website and their fundraising website are in the show notes of thejazzsession.com. Speaking of raising money, this show is also member-supported, so if you like what you hear, please do become a member. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com. A reminder that we've got a special membership promotion going on for the next two people who join at the middle or upper level either monthly or yearly, it doesn't matter which method you choose, uh, you'll get a copy of Anthony Wilson's CD-DVD set Seasons, which is really amazing. So uh, if you join at the middle or upper level, either monthly or yearly, the next two of you who do that will get a copy of that CD-DVD set. Meanwhile, get out there if you would please and support live jazz wherever and whenever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.